you all started laughing immediately. Apparently you go to a lot of places where you don't belong. Most of you who know me pretty well know that my very favorite hobby is to play golf, that I like to golf. I'm not a particularly good golfer, but I enjoy it. It's, just, it's my favorite sport. I just, it's just, I'm really into it. So this past summer when I, was, I went down to Florida, actually when we went down to youth camp and I went with the students, my, a friend that I have in Florida was managed to get me onto a very nice, exclusive, private course. It's one of those courses where... To not name drop, but Bobby Bowden, Tom Glad, you know, those kind of guys are members, you know, like, like it costs more to be a member there than an average man makes in a year. And I remember pulling up, it's obviously, it's behind this like big gated community kind of set up. And I remember pulling up to the gate and thinking, Cody, take it in because you're never getting behind that gate again. Take it in, absorb it, enjoy it. And so I'm sitting there in my pickup truck that just, we've just hauled our luggage down to Florida in trash bags to keep it from being wet, you know, and I'm, I'm lined up behind all the luxury cars and I'm, I'm cruising back in there and I'm thinking, you know, I don't really know that the browning sticker is going to blend in, that I've that I'm got on the F-150 here. And so we're, we're going and we're looking at all, I'm looking at all the houses and taking in the golf course and I, I walk into the, the pro shop and, and it's kind of like my thought, I'm just going to look down at the ground and I'm just, you know, just going to kind of breeze through. I go into the bathroom and they've got razors in there that are nicer than anything I've actually ever owned in my house and that's what they use to just throw them in the trash can for people that are members there. And if you've ever wondered, by the way, if rich people get treated better, they do, Okay. Because everybody there, I guess they thought that I must have been a member of some sort. You know, I've got on my nicest golf short, shirt, my nicest golf short. My, I wiped off my golf shoes a little bit. They don't know. And so, man, they're treating me nice. I'm on the golf course, and the whole, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm playing by myself, and I'm shaking. You know, and I don't even know why. I get to the end of it, and there's this man there that, that takes your golf clubs, and he's wiping them off, and he's washing them. And, like, I still don't know if I'm supposed to tip him or not. I just gave him a pat on the back. Hey, buddy, I hope you had a great day. I didn't bring any cash. <laughs> and he, it, was like every, it was just almost like one awkward moment to the next because the whole time I'm there, I'm thinking, you clown. Like, Rabbit Town doesn't prepare you for that. <laughs> the country boy from Red Road's not blending in at Shark's Tooth. But you know... For Christians, this is how it typically feels for us in the world, isn't it? This is how it feels for us to live in the present world. If we can sense the awkward moments around us, there's, a, there's almost a discomfort, even when we're enjoying our family, even when we're uh, living, even when things are maybe good in our lives, there's always a bit of discomfort kind of beneath the surface because we know instinctively because of the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives that this isn't home. This is at home. And so we live in this land, we live in this day, we live in this generation and in this nation realizing, aware that we are foreigners, we are sojourners in a strange place. And as is always the case for a foreigner, always the case for a sojourner, it's very easy for us to get, get discouraged. It's very easy for us to become downtrodden. It's very easy for us to see all of the havoc around us and all the chaos around us and all the confusion around us and to allow our faces to fall and our spirits to go down and to think, Jesus, do you not care? 
this morning, this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to. Because this is not a new issue, this is not a new struggle, this is not a new problem for a disciple of Jesus. This dates back to the very original disciples of Jesus walking with him in his ministry. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning we'll be looking at the second of seven parables in Matthew 13. So if you have your Bibles, stand with me. As we read God's word together. This morning, again, it'll be a little bit different because we'll read verses 24 through 30. And then we'll skip down and read the explanation of those verses in verses 36 through 43. So let's read God's word together beginning in 13 verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let us let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Skip down to verse 36. Then he left and crowds went into the house. Left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His word this morning. You may be seated. So as we see this second parable, we see him going to a, a familiar theme that we found in the first. Again, living in an agrarian culture, Jesus goes back to a parable that has to do with farming. But this one's a little bit different. This one is not focused on the soil of the heart. Instead, this one is focused on two various uh, seeds that are sown and two various crops that are raised up together. Apparently, in this parable, we have what is obviously or apparently a successful farmer, a man that has a plantation, a man that has servants, a man that has a barn to put the harvest in. And he has sown in his fields uh, what would have been one of the most uh, profitable crops of his day, a, a crop of wheat. Now, he's put his servants to work, they've, he's handed them good seed, they've sown the good seed into the prepared soil, they are awaiting the harvest when one day the servants come to the master frantic. In distress, they come to the master and say, Master, did you not give us good seed? Master, did you give us bad seed? Are you sure you got this from, from a reputable place? Are you sure that this seed is the wheat that you intend to grow? 
And you can almost imagine the master in this scenario saying, whoa, 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 guys, 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 guys. Breath, count back from ten. All right, let's start over. What's going on? And they said, well, weeds have begun to grow in the seed, have begun to grow among the wheat. And this was almost certain a, a particular type of wheat, bearded darnel, which would have looked just like wheat until the very end when the wheat would have grain and the weed would not. Now, the, 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 mass, the, the servants are frenzied. They're frantic. But the master almost seems as though he expected it to come, doesn't he? The master does not, is not distressed. The matter, master does not panic. Instead, he says, I know exactly what happened. The enemy came at night. The enemy that he would have clearly have known who he was. And he sown, he sowed in the bad seed. He's trying to sabotage my crop. He's trying to undermine what I am doing. He is trying to undermine my livelihood. Now, we know who the enemy was because Jesus tells us who the enemy is. The enemy is the devil. Now, this is the second time in as many parables that Jesus has made mention of the devil. And so Jesus is clarifying for us, he's clarifying for the disciples of that day, exactly who our enemy is. Our enemy, our adversary, our deceiver is the devil. And the devil is doing in these parables exactly what the devil has always been doing. His ways are a bit different, but his intentions are the same. His purposes are the same. His desires are the same. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see the devil painted in the Bible in the same light, doing the same things over and over and over again. We see the devil painted here as one who is cunning and smart and stealthy. One who does his wicked deeds under the cover of dark while everybody else is laid down asleep. We see the wickedness of his intentions. No comp nothing to be accomplished in this crop other than the destruction of his enemy. The destruction of the one which he is jealous of. You know, we not, we've got to stop believing the PR of the devil. The modern PR of the devil is deceiving the people of God. We have in our minds, when we hear the devil, it's almost even difficult for me to say it, the devil, because I have pictures, images that come into my mind when I hear that phrase of this light-hearted, jovial, red cartoon with a, a pitchfork and a tail. The, the devil is a brilliant PR marketing man. He has got a PhD in marketing. He could be teaching classes, probably is teaching classes at Harvard right now on marketing. And you know what, if that's what comes into our minds when we think about the devil, if that's who we understand our enemy to be, he's got us exactly where he wants us. Because I'm telling you, our enemy is not some light-hearted red fellow. Our enemy instead is a lion crouching, ready to pounce upon us at a moment's notice. He is the thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy he is the lion that is going to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your children. He wants to devour your family. He wants to devour your church. He wants to devour your joy. He wants to devour your peace. The devil is, a, is an adversary that waits until you're asleep, lying away, and then he pounces upon you in a moment of weakness to bring destruction to you and to the people and the things that you love. Do not underestimate your enemy, brothers and sisters. We are at war. 
We are at war. This is not a time for complacency among the people of God. This is not a time of peace for the people of God. Peace is coming, but that is not today. We are at war, and we must know our adversary better than our adversary knows himself, which is possible because we have the truth in the word of God. We must defend our families and defend our faith and battle with weapons that the Spirit gives to us for this spiritual warfare that if our church and our families and indeed our very own faith are going to endure until the end. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate your enemy. Do not underestimate your adversary. Do not underestimate how badly he wants to destroy you and your marriage and your kids and your church. Do not underestimate him. Well, that kind of leads us into what I think is the main point of the parable here. What, what, what Jesus is getting at is really not even first and foremost there. That, that is certainly in view that the disciples, a disciple of Jesus, cannot underestimate the enemy. But I think even more at the forefront of what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. Though you, can, you should not underestimate him, you must not fear him. You should not underestimate him. But you must not fear him. That I know what is coming. I know the victory that is at hand. I know what is already secured. And because I know all of that, because I am in control of all of that, your frantic hearts can be put at ease. Think again about the picture of the master with the servants. The servants come to the master and they're frenzied and they're frantic. And what does the master say? You don't understand. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. E easy there, Roger. Easy. Take a, take, take a seat for a second and let me tell you what's going to happen. No, we're not going to go and rip up the weeds right now. We're just going to be patient. We're going to wait. We're going to endure. We're going to let the crop grow in together. And as it grows in together, it'll be clear what is a weed and what is wheat. And we will be able to separate them, saving all of the harvest and at the same time burning all of the weeds. So in other words, the master looks to his people and says, yes, the, the enemy is great, but your master is greater. Your, your enemy is cunning, but your master is in control. I can put all of this together. I have a plan of how all of this is going to fit together and nothing is going to be destroyed. Nothing is going to be ruined. We are not going to lose one fraction of this crop, of this harvest. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples, you don't have to fear the enemy. You don't have to fear the darkness of these days. You don't have to fear the difficulty of this generation. You don't have to fear the struggle of living in this fallen world. Because let me tell you what happens in the end. Let me tell you about the days that are coming. Let me tell you that yes, your enemy is strong. But your master is much stronger. Your enemy is great, but your master is much far greater. Victory has already been assured. Victory has already been secured. And so yes, my frantic disciples, when you feel your hearts begin to race, look to the end and feel them resets. Brothers and sisters, this is the same for us this morning. It is the same for us this morning. We live in this world and we know we're foreigners here. 
We live in this world and we know we're sojourners here. We know this is not home. This is not comfortable. This is not right. And our hearts may become frantic. We may get enveloped in the chaos. But our master is telling us this morning, my brothers, my sisters, my child, take a seat. Sit back. Look to the end and let your heart be reset. So as we move into the interpretation here, this is what is really one of the longest discourses that we have on the Day of Judgment uh, found in all of the New Testament. It's really rather remarkable. As a matter of fact, there are three different allusions in the text to the very book of Daniel. Daniel is what we would call an eschatological book. And I I know you're thinking, wow, now that's a word. Um, But we're not going to be scared of words here, remember? And so all eschatological means is eschatology is the study of the end times. And so it is a a book that is looking to the end times. And so Jesus makes reference to that three different times uh, in his response, in his explanation. Letting us know, cluing us in on what this is to be studied. As I've heard this parable preached and taught over my Christian life, I've typically heard, and there is a great debate among many commentators as to what this means, but I've typically heard this preached in the context of the church, that the, that the field is the church and that within the church there are wheat and weeds growing up together. But I don't believe that that is what Jesus has in mind here. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, if brothers disagree with me, that's okay with me. Uh, there's some men much smarter than me that disagree with me, and I'm just humble enough to say they Maybe they're right. There probably are. But there are, there's another school of thought that is more of my school of thought, and it is that the field is not the church, but it is the world. And I think that it is the world because of what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 38, the field is the world. Okay? Now, maybe I'm a bit simple-minded, <laughs> but when Jesus says the field is the world, I'll go with him, all right? Sorry, Dr. Sproul, I'm with Jesus, all right? So the field, he said, Jesus says the field is the world. And so I believe what we're seeing here is the, what the picture is for a disciple living in this current world. And I want to make two big picture observations for us today. The first observation that I want us to see is that Jesus' disciples must not leave the world. Jesus' disciples must not leave the world. Now, Remember back to Matthew chapter 11. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 11, the first 19 verses there, we have John the Baptist is in prison. He's awaiting his execution. He's been there probably for a year. He has sent some of his disciples forward to go and to ask Jesus this, Are you really him? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the the Lamb of God that we've been waiting for? Are you really the one that we thought were coming? Because for John the Baptist, some things were not adding up. John had preached that the kingdom of God was here and that the Lamb had come to baptize in fire and to judge. In other words, in John the Baptist's mind, a separation was to take place. That the Messiah would come to establish his rule and upon the establishment of his rule, he would gather in all of the righteous and all of the unrighteous would be destroyed. All of the unrighteous would be banished. They would come under his tyranny, if you will. For all Jews, in fact, they had some understanding of the Messiah in this light. They, most of them understood the Messiah to come and to bring in all of ethnic, ethnic Israel to come and to, to be the righteous kingdom, while all of the unrighteous were condemned and damned to an eternal death. But Jesus comes, and that's not happening. That's not taking place. 
Jesus is healing people. Jesus is saving people. Jesus is forgiving people. Jesus is even rebuking people. But no separation is taking place. And that's what causes John the Baptist to think, maybe I missed it. Maybe I don't see all of this and how all of this is fitting together. But for us, this teaches us something so, so important. Have you ever wondered why it is that when you came to faith in Christ, when your heart began to love the things of God, when your mind began to wander into the glories of God, when you began to be uh, filled with worship at the excellencies of God, have you ever wondered in that moment why God didn't just make you perfect and bring you into his presence? Have you ever wondered why in that moment God didn't just separate you from the temptation to sin, separate you from the suffering that is to come, separate you from the world? Why didn't God in that moment just bring you into his presence? Jesus, I think, is answering that for us. I think he's answering that for his disciples. And he's answering that for all of those who are perplexed as to the meaning and the truthfulness of him being the Messiah. That the reason is that the church has not been called out. The reason is that the, that the church has not been separated from the world. That the righteous, those credited with Jesus' righteous, made righteous by Christ himself. The reason they have not been separated out at this point is because the harvest isn't finished yet. It's because the harvest isn't finished yet. What does the master tell his servants? He says that if, if we go and we begin to pull up the weeds from the wheat, what's going to happen? Some of the wheat is going to get pulled up with the weed. See, what would happen is when these two, uh, when the wheat and the weed would grow together in the same field, the roots would begin to intertwine with one another. That the roots would overlap and they would wind themselves in, again, around each other. So if you were to go and you were to pull up the darnel, you would pull up the wheat with it because they were underneath the ground. They were combined almost as one. But if you waited until the end, if you waited until the harvest, then you could just take the grain from the wheat and keep it, and you could dispose of the weeds. You know, in our lives, in the world, in this field that we all are living in, as we grow up among the unrighteous, as we grow up among those who are not yet in Christ Jesus, those who are an apparent weed, there's a lot of overlap, isn't there? There's a lot of overlap. And if Jesus were to call us up right now, if Jesus were to, to, to put an end to his patience and an end to his long-suffering as he awaits the, the calling up of his church, if Jesus was to come right now and to make all things right in a way that is not according to his will and not according to his, his timing, you know what would happen? The harvest would not be as big as it's going to be. The harvest would not be as big as it's going to be. If the servants would have went out into the field and they would have pulled up all of the weeds that they could find, at the end the wheat harvest would not have been as big as it would have been. If Jesus were to separate us out right now, if Jesus were to come back and end his suffering, there are still apparent weeds yet to be transformed into wheat that would not be harvested. The reason that you and I are still here is because Jesus' grace isn't finished saving yet. The reason that you and I are still here it's because Jesus in his long suffering is still pouring his sparkling righteousness over common wretches. The reason that you and I are still here is because the very grace of Jesus is reaching down into the abyss and pulling up sinners and placing their feet on the solid rock of the gospel. The reason that you and I are still here is because our Savior is a patient Savior and a gracious Savior and a merciful Savior and a good Savior who is yet to finish the harvest. And so for us, there's an application. If Jesus has not taken us yet out of the world, 
We cannot try to remove ourselves. Christians are not intended to live as hermits, withdrawn from the world. Christians are not intended to be an isolationist people that separate themselves from everywhere else and don't cross paths in the secular workforce or the secular secular, uh, industries of any sort. Instead, Christians are salt and light sprinkled throughout the cosmos, sprinkled throughout the earth that go and share and show the glory of Christ that more apparent weeds might be transformed into wheat. That more of those who are apparently the sons of the devil might be transformed into being the sons of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to dine with sinners because the harvest isn't finished yet. We have a responsibility to dine with sinners because our Savior is still saving. He is still exposing His mercy and His grace to the sins and covering them fully. We have a responsibility to not waste the patience of Jesus. If our Savior is patiently waiting that more might be saved and more might be transformed, and he is patiently leaving us among them, that we might show him them his glory, and show them his kindness, and show them his mercy. We, his church, had best not waste his patience. Brothers and sisters, you are the salt. You are the light. You are in this world, but for a little while, make the most of it. Don't withdraw wherever your lives overlap. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at home. Maybe it's where you shop, where you eat, where you get your haircut. Wherever your life overlaps with the world, use that as an opportunity to point to the patient and enduring and long-suffering Savior that is ready to reap the harvest. The second Big picture point that I want us to see here from Jesus' explanation is that Jesus' disciples can hope in future gain. Jesus' disciples can hope in future gain. So, apparently, I am training for a marathon. Now, when I say that, it still doesn't feel real. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've always wondered what kind of crazy you'd have to be to run 26 miles or whatever. And I'm kind of have this like day-to-day relationship with it. Like in other words, like I wake up, yeah, I'll still do it today. Yeah, I'll still do it. And I'm really not willing to commit much further uh, past kind of a day-to-day commitment. Like I I'm not even Alan asked me about paying the fees and, and buying the thing and go ahead and sign. I said, no, I'll just wait to the very last day. I'm not even sure. We're just gonna do day by day. And so I've been running here for a three for about three months, I guess, two, three months. And so I, I wake up in the morning at like 5 a.m. to go and pound pavement and to run. And I, I, it's just, it still sounds crazy. And the only thing that's getting me out of bed in the morning is I think eventually of what it will be like to cross the finish line. What that moment will be like to have that kind of rare and unique experience that I think I read that like. Less than half of 1% of all Americans have ever actually completed a marathon. And so that thought of being able to do something and experience something and, and know that you kind of accomplished something that is, that is kind of extraordinary and unique, that's what gets me out of bed every morning at 5 a.m. right now to run and to, to go and do miles or to run five miles on a Saturday when I would rather be eating pancakes with my family. Like, that's, that, that, that's getting me. So I'm thinking over and over and over as I go through these daily trainings that, quite frankly, are sometimes brutal about the future gain. 
about that, about that moment when you, when you cross the finish line and you just collapse. Like, I did that. I just ran 26 miles like a crazy person. I'll probably never do that again. But you know, I think there's a very real sense in which that is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Right now, they're living in this mission. They're not being taken from the world. They're living as foreigners, as sojourners, on a difficult, in a difficult time, in a difficult generation, in a difficult place. They're being continually persecuted, conspired against. And Jesus is looking at them and, at, and he's saying, my brothers, my children, look to the end. Look to the final gain. Think about the day that is to come. Think about that moment when you cross the finish line. Think about that moment when you just collapse into the Father's arms. And say, I don't have to do that again. I don't have to struggle anymore. I don't have to fight anymore. I don't have to wonder anymore. I don't have to cry anymore. All of that is gone. He said, look to the end. As you, as you struggle right now, your hope is found in the end. Three different ways I think we see this in Jesus' response. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus' rule will be fully realized. Look at with me in verse 37. Verse 37. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now remember I told you earlier that there are some allusions here to the book of Daniel. This is one of them. This is an allusion to the Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, it speaks of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is one that will reign in total sovereignty and total authority over all of the universe. He is one that no one can question. He is one that no one can stop. He is one that answers to no one. Instead, it says that he will establish a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. That the Son of Man will be a king, he will be a ruler, he will be sovereign over the universe, and his kingdom shall not be stopped, shall not be destroyed. Now, if September 11th proved anything to us, it proved to us that we aren't secure, didn't it? It, 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 made, it makes you think differently about going into an airport, doesn't it? If ISIS is proving anything to us today, it's that we're not safe anywhere. That there's insecurity regardless of where we are. We live in a country that has nuclear weapons. We live in a country that has the CIA. We live in a country that has maybe the mightiest military in the history of the world. And yet, right now, today, two members of ISIS could come in here and kill some of us before any of us could even respond to it. And we know that. We live in an insecure world. We live in insecure times. But Jesus is telling his disciples, though they are coming after you, though you wonder how long you will endure, Though you wonder how you will survive, though you wonder with a threat lingering over your life all of the time, and though you languish, and though you suffer, there is a day coming when bomb shelters won't be needed anymore. There is a day coming in which tornado shelters won't be needed anymore. There is a day coming in which nuclear weapons and armies and the CIA will no longer be needed because the Son of Man is coming back. And when the Son of Man is coming back, he will establish a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And that means that all of us, all of us in Christ Jesus, all of us in his grip, all of us covered in his righteousness and his grace, all of us, that means we shall not be destroyed. Let me tell you what that means for us today, brothers and sisters. We can live courageously today 
because the king is coming tomorrow. We can live courageously today because the king is coming tomorrow. We can live out the struggles of this day. We can fight the good fight this day. We can battle against the adversary this day. We can preach and preach and preach and go and go and go in language and language and language. We can endure and hope on this day because a better day is coming. This day is only going to last for a little while. That day will endure forever. And on that day, all of our troubles, all of our struggles, all of our pains will melt away. Disciple of Jesus, does that not give you hope? Disciple of Jesus, does that not stiffen your spine a little bit? Disciple of Jesus, does that not lift up your head for a moment? We can live courageously now. Teenagers, you can go to your school and you can live in a way that is completely unpopular. You can live in a way that is completely different, under total ridicule, completely set apart from the gospel, that will cause you to be called names and insult. You can do that courageously because you only have to do that for a minute. You only have to do that for a little while. All of the other people will be proven fools when the king comes back and he calls you to himself and you reign with him forever. Some of you are on the verge of losing your job, perhaps, because you take a stand for faith. You're not abrasive. You're not mean-spirited. You're just filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the mission that you've been called to. And day after day after day, you call people, you love people, you invite them to follow Jesus. Perhaps you're being asked to do things that are unethical, and you realize that maybe the end of your livelihood is around the corner. You can get through that day, brother and sister. You can get through that day. And you can get through that day today because the king is coming tomorrow. The enemy may be strong today, but the master is much stronger. Brothers and sisters, this life is difficult. This life is hard. But your victory is already secure. Your victory is already secure. You are already a part of a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Secondly, Jesus' judgment will be final. Jesus' judgment will be final. It gets better. Look at me, verse, verse, begin in verse 40 with me. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom will cause all causes of sin and law, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, there's a then, that's an important then. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Somehow, when we come to the judgment, I think because of an abuse of preaching, that's my, that's my, my opinion, I believe that because of an abuse of preaching and an abuse of, of um, coercive evangelistic tactics, that typically when even Christians think of the judgment, they tremble. When Christians think of the judgment, they, they're fearful. When Christians think of the judgment, they are not filled with, with joy, with excitement. As a matter of fact, I think if you ask most Christians, are, do you want the, to, the judgment of Christ to come today, most of them would say no. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that Jesus tells his disciples about the judgment to encourage them. 
He tells them about the judgment to increase their patience and increase their endurance and increase their hope. For the man or woman or teenager or child in Christ Jesus, the judgment will be the greatest moment in the history of your life. You will be taken out of suffering. You will be face to face with the glory of God. You will receive the goodness of your, war, your reward. You will understand the profundity of your pardon. You will understand the beauty of grace, the supremacy of the kingdom of God in an in a instant, in a way that you've never understood over the whole decades of your life. It is not terrifying for the Christian. It is terrifying for the unchristian. And it's terrifying because there's a separation that happens. Again, we grow up in the, in the world and we look the same, right? We have the same backgrounds and the same stories and the same struggles and the same skeletons and the same sinfulness and the same wretchedness. Only one has been covered by the grace of Jesus and the other is left excluded on the outside looking in. The other having completed his life in rebellion and offense toward God. And as devastating as that is, as difficult as that is, understand what Jesus is doing. Understand what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Do you understand what that will mean, though? That will mean all Christian suffering will end. All Christian suffering will end. What is, what, there are only two reasons for all Christian suffering. Do you realize that? Two reasons and two reasons only that a Christian suffers. Sin and sinners. Sin and sinners. We suffer because we live in a world that is filled with sin. We suffer because our own hearts are drawn towards sin. We suffer because we are surrounded by sinners who are cruel and who do vicious things to us and say malicious things about us and try to uh, uh, up, upend our lives. But one day, one day, not just all sin will be destroyed. Notice what he says, all causes of sin will be destroyed. One day, all, all the people that persecute, all the people that ridicule, all the people that come after you, one day, it will be the day of harvest. The harvest will be finished. And one day, that separation will take place. And never again will you be ridiculed. Never again will you be persecuted. Never again will you be slighted. Never again will you be passed over. Never again will you be neglected. All Christian suffering will end. Now this morning, we've got babies in here that have had to have surgery. It's devastating. We've got children who were in a biological situation that was unhealthy, that had to be beautifully and powerfully adopted into another. We've got marriages on the verge of collapse. We've got some of you who had a previous marriage before that just completely fell apart. Some have been abused in here. Some of you wake up every single day and you hate the place that you have to go. You hate the things that you have to face. You hate the, the pressure and the stress. Some of you, you feel like your children are so far from God that you'll, they'll never come back to Him or they'll never want Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's a day coming in which you will rest. There is a day coming in which all of your struggles and all of your pain and all of your difficulty, all of that will end. All of the sources of it will go away, damned to hell, cast into the fiery furnace. And from that fiery furnace, no angel will deliver it. How could you rest if your war with sin was over? How would your soul rest 
if your war with sin was over. If never again you felt one inkling of guilt. If never again you felt one inkling of anxiety. If never again you had even a crack of unbelief. If never again you had to try to fight off the the urge to satisfy some selfish indulgence. If never again you loved something just a little bit more than you loved the glory of God. If never again you had to worry about a tragedy lurking around the corner, how would your soul rest? Rest today, brother. Rest today, sister. The king is coming tomorrow. The king is coming tomorrow. And all of this is going away. All of this is melting away. Believe today. Rest today. The king is coming tomorrow. Finally. What I want you to see is that you will be finally you. You will finally be you. He says in verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is the exact same words that are come from Daniel chapter 12. And it comes again up in Matthew chapter 17. You know what happens in Matthew chapter 17? The transfiguration. Where Jesus to three of his disciples is shown, is covered in the glory of God. So that he begins to to glow, to shine like the sun, it says. And it says that one day, when all of this comes to an end and the day of harvest is at hand. And the, the righteous are separated from the unrighteous. On that day that you, the righteous, those made righteous in Christ Jesus, you will no longer be dimmed by sin. You will no longer have your eyes veiled by your own wickedness. You will no longer have your your ears plugged with your own self-centeredness. No, on that day, all of that will fall away from you. Your eyes will be open. Your mind will be clear. Your ears will hear clearly. And you will shine. You will reflect the glory of God in a way that you were intended to. You remember Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says that all of us were made in the image of God. And though all of us are made in the image of God, for most of us, it's very difficult to see, isn't it, brothers and sisters? You know what that means? You've never really been you before. Not fully. Not totally. There's there's cracks there. There's glimpses there. There, There's there's peaks into who God really built you to be. And and as we grow in the gospel and mature in the faith, those those become clearer and clearer in our faces. But the truth is that you, fully you, totally you, entirely you, reflecting the image of God, we've never seen that before. But when you get to glory, when Christ returns, when the king comes back, all of that is going to fall away. All of the veil is going to be lifted. And you're going to look in the mirror. And what you're going to see in the mirror is the very image of Jesus himself. This is the end of the difficult road of discipleship. This is the road that all of us are following, that are following after Christ Jesus. 
That as we deny ourselves and we take up our crosses and we follow him, as we endure suffering for his name, as we continue to battle sin in our life and to put to death what is earthly in us, as we continue to long for glory and long to bring glory to God and to bring to show him into our world with the overlaps in our world, as that increases and as we fight, as we claw and as we scratch and as we fight this spiritual battle with the spiritual weapons given to us, by God himself, one day all of that is going to come to an ultimate fruition in which we will reach total and perfect Christian maturity in Christ Jesus and we will be perfectly us in the image of God. The road of discipleship will end, brothers and sisters, and it will end in the next life as we are totally conformed disciples of Christ Jesus. Take heart today, disciple. Take heart today, Christian. Because the king is coming tomorrow. Take heart in your Christian life today. Mature in your Christian life today. Fight the spiritual fight today. Because the king is coming tomorrow. You only have to fight for a little while. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your kingdom will not be destroyed, and even more so, that we're a part of it. That you have called us into fellowship with you. That you had called us